on Luke chapter 13. Um, I must put in a plug for the courses that are being offered at the Bible College. I had the absolute privilege of uh, attending a course at the Bible College. Now they're running some on Saturdays and some after, you know, some at night and so. If you can get to go to one, do it. And there's two reasons for it. One, there's the stuff you learn, which is really great. And two, it's the discipline of sitting and learning will improve your own Bible study. So it's, it's a great thing. So look, um, I, I cannot recommend it highly enough to you. If you get a chance, go and do a class. Just, even just do one. You, you, you will absolutely uh, find yourself yeah, loving it. So that's, there you go. Yeah, that, one, that one's for you. Okay, Luke chapter 13, verses, verses going through from 1 um, to 9 today. Luke 13, 1 to 9. So, before we go any further, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you now for your word, for its truth, for its preciousness. Lord, for the blessing it gives our lives. We just ask that you will open our hearts and minds this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 13, verse 1. There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all Galileans because they suffered these things, such things? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Or those eighteen upon whom the tower of Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise presence, uh, you shall all likewise perish. That's better. Now it's interesting that these two incidents that are mentioned here, the the uh, death of these people from by Pilate, and the collapse of the Tower of Siloam, there is not one historical reference to either of, either one of them. The only thing we know about them is what's recorded by Luke. Now, rather than make this a big question mark this is actually a, a, a very good sign for Luke's historical accuracy because these are things that clearly everybody knew about so there was no need to, to, to make any special reference to them and the example I give is this if you read a book on the history of Australia how many times do you think it would mention the Westgate Bridge. Probably wouldn't even write a mention. But you could rephrase verse 4 in, in, in today's Melbourne society to say, or those 35 men upon whom the Westgate Bridge fell, do you think that they were sinners above all those that dwelt in Melbourne? I tell you, no. 
But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That's the equivalent of what he was saying. It was an event that was so fresh and so understanding in people's minds, and yet in the great scheme of things, it, it didn't rate a mention in the history books. Now this, uh, this expression here told him at that season, of, some told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had, had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, there is no record, and I don't think it happened, that there was actually violence in the temple. That is most unlikely. But it would be clear that a group of Galileans had come up to Jerusalem, probably bringing with them their own animals for sacrifice. There had been some type of religious riot, which Pilate had put down with his usual subtlety, uh, and, and there had been blood in the streets. These people had been killed. Their animals had probably been killed too. And so he, that it was, the expression was that their blood had been mingled with their own sacrifices. Now, this in fact was so common under Pilate's rule that nobody would have mentioned it. It would have been just a page one in the Jerusalem Post and that would have been it. No one would have mentioned it after that. Things got so bad under Pilate that the story is that one of the um, messages came from Rome that that they said to to the governor of, of Judea, if there is any more blood in the streets of Jerusalem... Yours will be amongst it. Oh, that's that's the kind of situation it was there. And that's why Pilate gave in to the mob. Because he tried the heavy-handed approach, call out the troops, and it didn't work. It big time didn't work. So, there's this thing here. Two groups of people. Two groups of people are mentioned here. One was religious. One was very religious. They'd come up to Jerusalem to do sacrifice. The other, they were just ordinary working class guys going about their daily business and this tower collapses and kills them. But they're united by the single refrain in verse 5 and verse 3. Now, how many times does Jesus have to say something to make it true? Once. It's true for two reasons. It's true because if he says it, it will be true. And two, it's true because when God says something, it becomes true. It is what he says because he speaks things into and out of existence. So if God says something, by definition it becomes true because it happens. So he repeats himself and says, Nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. You see, it doesn't matter who you are here. It doesn't matter if you're the religious person going to church. 
And it doesn't matter if you're just an ordinary building worker on your way to add another layer of bricks to the top of the Tower of Siloam. It doesn't matter. If there is no repentance, destruction is just around the corner. And to illustrate this, he tells a story. This is, this is interesting. He spake unto them this parable. You know what parable means? You know what the word parable means? You ever wonder what a parable means? You know, we, we know of par- parables are stories. A parable, by definition, is to take one thing and put it beside something else. That's what the word actually means. To put something alongside something else for the purpose of comparison or illustration. So what is he going to put? He's going to put this story alongside what has just been told to him and what he just said for the purpose of illustration and understanding. So he says, verse 6, he spake also this parable, a certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. Okay, just stop right there. Vineyard. Not his orchard, not in his his backyard. He had a, a fig tree planted in his vineyard. Now, as I say sometimes, I'm just a simple country boy, but I ask the question, what's a fig tree doing in a vineyard? There should be grapevines in a vineyard. That's why it's called a vineyard, because it's full of grapevines. Now, the, and, and again, this is the sort of the stuff you get when you go and do Bible college courses. If the land in Palestine was flat, They grew grain on it because that was the most valuable use you could get out of land. If it started to go up a bit, get a bit difficult to run the plough across it, they plant vines on it. And if it got so steep and rocky that you couldn't grow vines on it, they plant olives on it. Okay, we got further up. But he has a fig tree in his vineyard and we will come to to that back in a moment. Parables have, you know, you you look for what, what does the stuff mean in parables? Most of the time, I'll tell you, most of the time, it's really, really simple. A lot of people will try to tell you that understanding parables is a matter of really, really deep spiritual thinking. No. Understanding parables is a matter just of looking at stuff, going and getting your Strong's Concordance or your your Esort or whatever you use, and look stuff up. Vineyard. What do we know about vineyards? First guy who planted a vineyard, Noah, got drunk. Well, let's leave that one out. What does it say about vineyards? Have a look in the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah. 
The book of Isaiah starting at chapter 5 verse 1. Now, incidentally, do you think Jesus was the only person who used parables? No. Because have a look at Isaiah chapter 5 verse 1. Now I will sing a song to my well-beloved, a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill, and he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a winepress therein. And he looked that it should bring forth wild grape, that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could I have what could have been done more to my vineyard than I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it brought it forth wild grapes. Verse seven. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression for righteousness, but behold, a cry. Okay, there you go. You want to know what the, a vineyard symbolizes in a parable? There it says in Isaiah chapter 6 verse 7. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the nation of Israel. Yeah, now that was easy, wasn't it? It's not that tough. So, he went to his vineyard, this man, and had a fig tree in there. Figs. You know there's a fig tree just there? There's a fig there, just there. There's a fig tree there. And incidentally, the law of Moses entitles any person walking past a fig tree, um, if the figs are ripe, provided you don't actually harvest them and take them away, you can pick them and eat them. So, there you go. Figs. Figs. Figs were a common fruit in, in, in Palestine. Still are. What's so good about a fig tree? Fig trees are tough. Fig trees are of the genus Ficus, which includes, amongst other things, rubber trees, rubber plants, and a whole bunch of other plants that are around. You'd be surprised how many Ficuses are around in your gardens. But one of them is the fig tree. Figs were eaten fresh, figs were eaten dried, and if you remember the story of Abigail when she headed off to placate David when he was about to kill her husband, one of the things she took was 200 cakes of figs. Now, you didn't, you, you, didn't make, you didn't push them together. What you did, you got one fig and you pressed it and dried it. And it was about that round, about that thick, good big fig, and you dried it and you sort of half dried it. So it would keep, and that was a fig cake. It's very sweet, it's very nutritious, and it was portable food for people. You'd buy them in the market, half a dozen fig cakes. Not potato cakes, because they get cold. Fig cakes. Put them in your bag, and you could eat them during the day. So figs were, were, were an important plant. 
And figs are also used as an illustration in Scripture. Figs are a common illustration in Scripture. Um, Have a look at Jeremiah chapter 24. Jeremiah chapter 24. Jeremiah chapter 24 verse 1. The Lord showed me and behold two baskets of figs were set before the temple of the Lord after that Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon had carried away captive Jeconiah the son of Jehoiakim king of Judah and the princes of Judah with the carpenters and smiths from from Jerusalem and had brought them to Babylon. One basket had very good figs even like the figs that are first ripe. The other basket had very naughty or very wicked figs which could not be eaten they were so bad. And the Lord said unto me, What seest thou, Jeremiah? And I said, Figs. Now he explains, yes, some were very good and some were very evil. But the first reaction was, What do you see? I see figs. Figs are, are associated with fruitfulness. Figs are associated with production. Figs are associated with getting something, with fruit. And just back in Luke, this man came to his vineyard to a fig tree. And he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. Like Jeremiah, he expected to come there and see figs. And there's none there. This is interesting. This is very interesting. You know there's two ways you can get a fig tree. Did you know there's two ways you can get a fig tree? There is. You can take a cutting from a previous fig tree and put it in and it grows roots and then you plant your fig tree. The great thing about that is that you know what you're getting. You know, it's it's going to be the the same variety and everything is what you what you got your first your cutting from. The other reason, other way you can get one, is by seed. You know, you spit out a few fig seeds or a fig gets buried or dropped and a fig tree comes up. You have no idea what you're going to get because they're grown from seed. You may get a good one, you may get a bad one. Now, a few years ago, my son David, some of you know him, got an apple core and opened it up and then proceeded to grow apple seeds. He struck them on little bits of damp cotton wool and then they got a little thing. He transplanted them into little ones and eventually he presented me with an apple tree. And I took it home and we planted it. And we waited and we waited and we waited for years and years and years. You know, it takes at least seven years to get fruit from an apple seedling. That's lucky. I'm glad he didn't sprout walnuts. They take 12 years to get a seed, to get fruit from a walnut. But figs bear really, really quickly, usually. Usually within a few years, you've got 
fruit on your figs. Maybe only one or two, but they, they come really quickly. I started to get worried about this apple tree. And I talked to somebody who knows a great deal more about gardening than I do, my dear old grey-haired mother. And she said to me, Son, do you realise there are some seedlings that never bear fruit? They're sterile. And I went, Oh, how can you tell? She said, you can't. It's just that they never bear fruit. Now this was interesting to me, especially when I start to read this story here. I am surmising, I'm now of the opinion that this was, if you like, a feral fig tree. Someone had dropped a fig or something like that and this fig tree had come up in the middle of the vineyard and the man had said, well, it's growing there, it's looking good, we'll leave it there and we'll get some figs off it. And after three years, he's come back to it. Three years after it's of a size when it should be bearing fruit, he's come back and it says he looked for fruit and he found none. And he's starting to say, is this thing ever, ever going to bear fruit? Verse 7. Then said he to the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down, why cumbereth it the ground? He said to the guy in charge of his vineyard, I've come back three years and I've got nothing out of this. Cut it down reef it out, put me in some more grapevines or put me in an olive tree or put me in something but don't waste any more time and effort and valuable dirt on a fig tree that's not going to bear. Now the vine dresser and here's another little interesting thing. Do you realise that's the only place in scripture where that term is used, the vine dresser, the guy in charge of the vineyard. But that's, I don't know what it means, but it's interesting. He said to the, to the guy who owned the vineyard, and he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also. And I shall dig about it and dung it. He said, I've got, you know... Donkey manure over there from where we've been working the, 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 uh, the presses. I'll, I'll dig, I'll clear the weeds around. I'll clear all the weeds around it and I'll give a nice big pile of manure around it. And if it bear fruit, well. And if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. Now there's something interesting there that you may not have picked up but we shall see. For three years he has come seeking fruit on his fig tree and found nothing. Now he has said enough. And, and he's told, no, give it, give it just one more shot. 
One more shot. I'll, I'll weed it and prune it a bit maybe and, and, and uh, fertilise it. And, and if it bears fruit, well then you're, you're fine. But if it doesn't, cut it down. Three years. Why do you think he said three years? I've come for three years. What in, what in scripture lasts three years? Let me think. The flood? No, that's, that's 40 days and nights. The exodus? No, that's 40 years. The captivity? No, that's, that's 70 years. The tribulation? No, that's seven years. What lasts three years? Let me think. Oh, I know what lasts three years. The ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ on earth lasted three years. What does it say in John chapter 1 verse 11? It says he came unto his own and his own received him not. For three years he came seeking what? From his people. Remember, the vineyard is of the Lord of hosts is the nation of Israel. Jesus came to the nation of Israel seeking fruit for three years and he found it not. What fruit do you think he was looking for? What did he say twice to these people? Except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Now the people who were listening to him, they knew Isaiah. They knew what the vineyard meant. They knew Jeremiah. They knew about figs. They knew about unfruitfulness. So what's this give it another year? I believe that refers to the ministry of the early church where the gospel went forth first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. They were given one last chance to repent. Have a look over in Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13 verse 45. Started back back at 40, 44. Acts 13, 44. And the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary... That the word of God should first have been spoken to you. But seeing ye have put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. Turn over again in verse 18 or chapter 18. Verses 5 and 6. Verse 4, starting verse 4 of chapter 18. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. And when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. 
And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From henceforth I will go to the Gentiles. One more year. That's what the fig tree got. One more year where an expert would tend it and weed it and trim it and fertilise it. And if it bore fruit, well, it could remain. One more chance the Jewish people got. With the world's greatest preacher preaching to them, testifying, exhorting to them out of the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. And when they opposed, he said, that's it. You've had your shot. From now on, I'm going to the Gentiles who will listen. Look back in Luke 13. I want you to just notice something here. Verse 9. Now this is spoken by the, the vine dresser. And he says, And if it bear fruit, well... And if not, then after that, thou shalt cut it down. Now, I suggest that if you go up to Tatura or Shepparton, where they have those big orchards, right? And you, the boss of the orchard comes out, and one of his workers is there, and they have a look at a tree, and they say, oh, this tree's just rubbish. We'll get, we're going to get rid of it. The, the worker in the orchard does not say, yes, boss, you rip it out. No, it doesn't work that way. But here it's clearly said, the Lord of the vineyard will take action against the tree. Not the worker in the vineyard. The Lord of the vineyard will chop it down. Look over the Gospel of John. The witness of John the Baptist. Sorry. Let's try. So in, in Luke, Luke chapter 3, Luke chapter 3, the witness of John the Baptist. Luke 3 7. John says to the, the, uh, the people that come out, out to him, Then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptised of him, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits, fruits, worthy of repentance and begin not to say within yourselves we have had Abraham to our father for I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham and now also the, the axe is laid to the root of the trees therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire oh 
You think anybody was there who remembered John saying that? I think there were a few. The message from John was the same as the message that Jesus is giving in this parable. The Lord of the vineyard, the Lord, the, the God, the, the Lord of hosts, has come to his vineyard looking for fruit and has found nothing. Now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Anybody ever chop down a tree? Right? Not, not just getting rid of... Now, now the dif- there's a difference between when you chop down a tree and when you get rid of a tree. Now, I've done both. In fact, I can remember dropping one within about two foot of where we wanted it, much to the relief of my next-door neighbour who was worried that I would take out, uh, you know, A, the guttering, B, the carport, C, the car or D, all of the above, you know, when it went the wrong way. But no, we, we, we dropped it nicely. When you chop down a tree, where do you chop it? Well, you chop it about that high. That's where you... Right. When you chop out a tree, when you get rid of one, where do you chop? Chop right down into the ground and cut the roots off. No, he was not going to cut down a tree. He was going to cut out a tree. For the axe is laid to the root of the trees. This is, this is destruction totally. See, if you cut them off too high, they reshoot again. No, he's going to dig them right out. Where there is no repentance... There remains nothing but judgment. So what does it mean to repent? You ever considered the very first place that the the word repentance is used in Scripture? You ever wondered about that? Because look, again, I'll I'll let you in on another little Bible college sort of secret thingy that they... It's not secret. it's, It's something they teach you that it's a really good study tool. If you ever wonder about a term in scripture, look up the first place it's used. It's called the first mention principle. And you'll usually find something that'll really just open your eyes to to the way it's used. The very first place that repentance is used in scripture is in the book of Exodus chapter 13 verse 17. You can look it up if you want. But it's the story of the children of Israel leaving Egypt and heading towards the promised land. And God says, don't send them by the coastal route. Because it's full of Philistines and forts and everything like that. And when the going gets tough, the people will repent and turn back to Egypt. In other words, they will turn around and go back the way they came. Repentance consists basically of turning around and going the other way. That's what repentance means. To turn around and go the other way. 
Again, really simple meaning. And you can understand that concept. They're going along the route. The fighting gets too hard. What do they do? They turn around and go back the other way. That's what it means to repent. It is not about turning over a new leaf. It's about pulling out the whole rotten tree. Now, some of you have had, you know, you have ridden horses, right? When you turn a horse, which bit do you turn first? The tail? You know, the body? No, you turn the head. Because the strange thing about horses is they follow their heads. The rest of the horse will usually follow the head. They're, they're, they're funny like that, but that's the way they are. If you're going to change the way you are, it comes down to first of all turning your head. Repentance is right down at the deepest point an act of the will. It's saying, I will do things differently. Not I'll change a few dirty habits. I will change not only what I think, but the way I think. I will turn my head around. Trust me, if you turn your head around, the rest of your body will follow. It's changing the way you think, not just what you think. It's saying, I've been going and doing the wrong thing and I will change. I'll do things not my way, but God's way. It is fundamentally an act of the will and a decision. You know, we talk about people making decisions for Christ. The decision they need to make is, first of all, that they were wrong. Secondly, that they better do something about it. Thirdly, they'll do it God's way and not their own way. Decisions. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decisions, says the scripture. Deciding what way they're going to go. How's the harvest? God's come to your life. Come to the vineyard. He's seeking fruit. What's he got? What's the harvest been? Now, our pastor talked last week about fruit. Isn't that amazing how God dovetails sermons in together from two different people? But he talked about the fruit of our lips, which God should expect. What's the harvest been? Have you been going about things your own way? Deciding that you'll provide whatever fruit you decide when you decide to do it? And the Lord of the harvest has come and found nothing there? There's a story about Augustine. Augustine, Bishop of Hippo. Gets a bad rap sometimes, but I still like Augustine. When Augustine was a young man, he lived a pretty wild life. He was, he was a, a real party animal. And after he got converted, there's a story that he was walking down the street 
and a girl who he had known and partied with previously saw him and began to walk up to him. And he, not wanting to entangle himself in that lifestyle again, began to walk away from her. Well, she began to walk a little bit faster, so he began to walk a little bit faster. And so so down the main street of this, this North African town is Augustine walking faster and faster and this girl starting to break into a run chasing him. And she calls out to him and she says, Augustine, Augustine, it's me, it's me. To which he replies, but it's not Augustine anymore. Yeah. Not me anymore. That's repentance. That's genuine repentance. He's saying, I'm changed. I'm not the man I was. I don't walk the way I did and I don't want to have anything to do with the way I lived before. There is fruit. Fruit in abundance. And as I said, how's the harvest? Fruit been getting a bit light on? And you think, well, you know, okay, the fruit's been getting a bit light on, yeah, but hey, I'm coming to church, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm singing the songs, I'm there at the prayer time, it's not too bad. Have you ever thought that that's because the weeding is happening and the fertilising is happening because God is giving you one more chance for some fruit before the axe comes out. Now I'm not saying that the bridge will fall down on you like those guys or the Tower of Siloam will fall down on you. You know one of the saddest things that God does with people who don't bear fruit? He lets them. And just says, well, that corner of the vineyard, we'll just have to leave that go. Just leave it there. Let the weeds and the rubbish grow up in there and we'll just let it alone. And we'll go to work on these trees that need our, that will respond and will bear fruit. One of the saddest things in this world you will ever see is a Christian who has disobeyed God and just been put on the shelf and left because there was no fruit. No fruit. We put up Christmas trees. I like Christmas trees. We had fun putting up Christmas trees with, with little Kobe. He, it was good fun. He likes Christmas trees. You know what you have on Christmas trees? You have little things that hang there, almost like fruit, don't they? Now, what it, when, when we come and take down, and I'll, I'll put it to you this, this year. When you take down your Christmas tree this year, and you take off all those ornaments, ask yourself, what's on the tree? Is it fruit? Or tinsel? Is it something valuable? Or Santa snow? What's hanging on the fruit? What's hanging on your tree at the moment? Is it fruit? Or is it fluff? When God comes to your life and and seeks what is his due, what's there? Something that can be used for his glory? Or just fluff? Thank you.